agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? Well, I, I will uh, I will try to not to lapse into uh, tears here on this podcast. That's okay. Well, that's that's certainly at least. Well, I mean, if other, if other, if other I, I, sometimes I like to make these a little subtle if, if people haven't been watching. But <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, well, we will we will hope Jay doesn't lapse into tears. Uh, who knows what we will lapse into? But uh, we do have a lot to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about Kevin McCarthy and what he did or didn't say. Uh, the lie in New York Times, or maybe not actually. Uh, and uh, the the big ruling against the mask mandate, uh, Ron DeSantis versus uh, Disney, uh, latest in Russia and Ukraine. It's uh, this last week was tax day, so we'll talk about tax policy. It was also 420 day, a uh, big day for a lot of people, I guess, including Elon Musk. Uh, and then we'll talk about marijuana policy. And then our uniquely stupid last decade, at least according to Jonathan Haidt, we'll we'll get into that and and, and maybe more. Who knows? But that's a lot on our plate, and we will get right to it in just a second. Okay, Jay. So on Thursday morning, the New York Times reported that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had told colleagues, specifically uh, Liz Cheney, that after January 6th, he was going to suggest to Donald Trump that he resign. And when that reporting came out on Thursday afternoon, McCarthy issued a blanket denial and called the New York Times' reporting totally false and wrong. And then, oh, well, on Thursday evening, two times reporters provided audio with McCarthy saying, um, well, exactly what he was said. The New York Times was totally false and wrong in reporting. Uh, and so one would think that, well, that might cause a problem with Donald Trump. But all reports indicate that Donald Trump seems to be perfectly OK with uh, Kevin McCarthy at this point. And I should point out that's hardly unprecedented. Just last week. Trump endorsed Ohio Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance, who in 2016 called Trump cultural heroine and unfit for our nation's highest office. So, Jay, you know, in, in listening to all this and following all this, you're, you're our House Republican, so to speak. And uh, what does all this tell you about, uh, I guess, McCarthy, Trump and uh, Trump's hold on the Republican Party at this point? Well, I, th I think a couple things. Um, one, uh, look, there are in interpartisan, intrapartisan um, rivalries and headaches are much more common than I think most people think. Um, I, I can tell you in, in my career, um, to, to the extent I've had a career, if you want to call it that, um, it's people of my own party who have given me many more headaches, uh, much more angst uh, than anything the Democrats ever did. Um, and there's there's sort of a lot of reasons for that. It's sort of, you know, like part of it is, uh, you know, family fights are always the, the, the worst and that kind of thing. Um, but it's also it, it's just the nature of any kind of political organization. Right. Everybody's striving and climbing. Um, and there are factions and there are factions within factions. Um, 
and at the end of the day, though, you still have to uh, put a uh, you know cohesive team on the field, or or you or try to put one on the field. So I, to me, it's it's not at all uncommon that um, this type of thing would would happen of, of McCarthy musing uh, that look, Trump should resign, um, uh, saying that to Liz Cheney. Um, it's also politicians being what they are. It's not surprising that. He maybe forgot that conversation um, uh, or remembers it differently uh, or is just plain lying about it now that it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's not uh, helpful to be caught with it. Um, so all, all that said, I, I think this is kind of politics is, 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 is usual. And I think there's probably plenty of times Trump would have said something about I wish I could get rid of that damn Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and I think, he, you know, the version with Trump is he tends to say everything publicly. Um, uh, with all that, I think I think something that's that's a little different um, is now the Trump walking back the right. I mean, before it would have been uh, all right. Kevin McCarthy's dead to me. Uh, J.D. Vance is dead to me. Um, but he's moderating uh, a little bit, and I, I think that's that's a function of of looking at um, one who who he thinks is you know whatever the strongest horse uh, in the Ohio Senate race. Uh, and two, realizing that um, uh, Kevin McCarthy is someone that he has to work with and, and not vice versa. Does, does um, he really, though? I mean, it seems to me that Jim Jordan could make a very strong uh, case for being uh, Speaker of the House in, in January sure. of next year. And it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, he's been a Trump guy from the beginning and never, you know, said things uh, like, like McCarthy has said. And so I wonder if this is just a way of just sort of keeping McCarthy so he's not so much of a, a, an issue, a problem, just keeping him from kicking too much until the next Congress convenes. And then you can have uh, you can have Speaker Jordan, who's been a Trump guy, you know, all the way along yeah well no i mean i think that's not inconsistent with what i just said that it's not uh, there's no there's no upside uh for trump of, of starting a brawl with mccarthy right now right and so but you know, you know so so look if, if if uh uh you know i suppose he could he could be out there making the pitch of uh i want you know jim jordan to overthrow mccarthy uh next year but uh, part of this is I, I i think there is something in that um, the Trump influence has waned. Uh, I'm not going to say it's really? gone away. It certainly how, hasn't. How do you how how do you get that when you look like in the Ohio Senate race where people were just falling all over each other to try to get Trump's endorsement? And it's also weird, you know. You say Trump's trying to pick the winning horse. That's just that's just factually. I mean, at least from the polling, not true in the Ohio Senate race, because he would if he was going to do that, he would have gone with uh, uh, Joshie Mandel there. And he decided not to do that and go with the candidate who's considerably further behind in the polls. And so I, I think your narrative is I think your narrative is largely wishful thinking is that you truly want to believe that Donald Trump's influence is waning. But but I think that Trump is Donald Trump and Trumpism is just as strong. In fact, if if not stronger than it really ever was. And I understand you not wanting to believe that's the case, but it just seems that the facts just contradict your your wishful thinking here. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you're 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 getting that, because to me, I, I look at this. Um, and if Trump Trump is uh, the fact that Trump wouldn't didn't endorse endorse Vance over Mandel. Now there are a couple of things that could be playing in on that. Um, 
some of them could just be weird Trumpy sort of, hey, Vance is a, a celebrity of sorts, right? Sure, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, not, you know, Hollywood celebrity, but, you know, he wrote a book and they made a movie of it. Um, he's not, you know, hey, this guy's the former Ohio treasurer. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Sure, I mean, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's, he there's loves celebrities, yeah. The, the outsider piece of that. Um, second is, it's almost as if... Uh, Trump needs, and this is maybe this is this is my this is what I'm trying to get at. Trump is is broadening his appeal a little bit, or trying to, right? Um, How so? I'm not following. Well, so that. for example, I mean, if 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 Trump had, let's put it this way, if Trump had the the horses, so to speak, um, to say Kevin McCarthy ought to be out uh, uh you know Liz Cheney ought to be out uh we ought to install Jim Jordan right now the and 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 look there's there's nothing um that you necessarily need election for right the the, the house caucus could could change its leadership whenever it wanted um he he'd be making that case but he's not because he doesn't want that fight because he doesn't think he'll win that fight or now, you know, you sometimes, you know, you just suggested that maybe maybe Trump is just being Trumpy and maybe he just likes the fact that Kevin McCarthy comes groveling to him. Multiple repeated phone calls, apparently, oh, that, on Thursday that, oh, and think, Friday. Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it. Yeah. And so well, I guess what I'm seeing is I'm seeing all these figures in the Republican Party at the very top of the party still jumping over coops and just bald face lying also they can make sure they stay in the good graces of, of Donald Trump. You know, I'm reminded of something that Mitch McConnell reportedly said to a friend uh, not too long after January 6th. He said, you know, um, uh, I didn't get to be leader by voting with five people in the conference. And so it, it just seems to me that that all of this just suggests that Donald Trump is still the kingmaker and is the sort of king in waiting. And that's that's kind of how things are playing out. Now, that might change after the midterms, but I don't really see any evidence that that necessarily is going to change. I mean, I see our I see our future as being extraordinarily Trumpy. Well, we'll see. Um, I think it. I, I would agree that it may be Trumpy, but I'm that this is this is going to sound strange to some extent, perhaps Trumpy without Trump. That could um, be even worse. It could be. No, I, I, I agree. Um, but but that's my sense, right? Is that that this is kind of now moved beyond? Um, so, for example, right, uh, uh, Josh Mandel uh, would be Trumpy without Trump. Absolutely, yeah. Which would be the re- which would be sort of the reason of of Trump to say, okay, I'm I'm back in Vance. But but Vance, you see what I'm saying? But, but Vance would it's, also it's a, be it's Trumpy. A, it's a sign Trump. of it's a sign of weakness. Hmm. Yeah, it's I, a sign of weakness to to say. Uh, instead of instead of like I am so proud of of my good friend, um, uh, a longtime uh, uh, supporter Josh Mandel, uh, that he's leading the polls. He's apps. He's an absolute winner. He's been winning from day one. He's gonna he's gonna win Ohio. But he didn't do that. He he instead uh, picked Vance, who was um, again not I, I wouldn't say a long shot. Uh, not at uh, all by any no. means. He was he was in the consistently polled in the top couple. Um, uh, but not the front run. Yeah, I think if and you know, it is sort of to me, I see that as a need to reestablish 
his Trump status, if you follow me. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I, I disagree with the analysis, but I see what you're saying. I think there's maybe more to the celebrity thing. I mean, he endorses Dr. Oz and, right, and these right. folks. No, and, and, and so I think these, these folks win who wouldn't win otherwise. And he even strengthens, he strengthens his case even more going into 2024. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if, you know, advance wins in Ohio and, and a number of Trump candidates win. And then uh, next thing you know, like I said, you have uh, uh, the 2025, you have President Trump, Speaker Jordan, and uh, uh, holy crap, I guess I'm, I'm looking at, you know, Canadian citizenship or something at that point. I don't know. Anyway, um, but but I guess we are kind of united in the sense that we see at least the next few years still uh, being a uh, no diminishment of Trumpism. It's just maybe the extent to which you and I agree or disagree that Donald Trump will actually be that figure. Is that correct? Is that, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And like I said, I, I see these moves as, um, you know, again, the fact that that he essentially, um, right? Because could you imagine the Trump of of say, you know, January tenth uh, or something like that? Uh, confronted with the McCarthy statement. Yeah, well, and that was how obviously he, how he would have yeah. responded. He he would have said, "McCarthy's got to go. McCarthy's uh, disloyal to me. He's disloyal to the country. Uh, he's a rhino. He's a terrible, terrible person. Everybody knows this. People have been saying this uh, for years, um, right? Well, but yeah. now he's sort of like, well, okay, it's he's apologized. It's forgiven." Yeah, um, yeah, and again, I see that's yeah. taking a step back, and that's showing that you don't have the power that you once did. That's that's the point I'm trying to make. I, and I I get that analysis. I I I dis I disagree with. That. I certainly hope you're right. Well, I don't even know if I do hope you're right because I think it. Well, <laughs> in, in right, a way, if, if I'm right, the situation may well be worse. Ex uh, yeah. ex well, exactly. So yeah, it's either way. We seem to be united, I guess, in in our in our pessimism because neither of us really believes in uh, that sort of uh, Trump. Trumpist populism sort of sort of thing that kind of being the the worst sort of uh, faux conservatism I think yeah all right all right well then on that on that pessimistic note let's leave it there and uh, move well, in although oh, look I, I am going to still go with what I started with that these kind of dust ups uh, between party leaders are not uncommon sure yeah and and it's just one of those uh, there there's I mean you can have plenty of times of uh, Ronald Reagan saying in politics things about uh, Gerald Ford and vice versa, um, uh, right? And and Bob Dole and uh, you know I mean it, it just it's that just the, the natural tension. Um, uh, and you you could even point out you know between uh, Bill Clinton and uh, uh, Al Gore and Barack Obama and yep. uh, uh, Joe Biden, right? Yeah, there's tension, but then there's saying that saying to people in your own party that you think your president is uh, so unfit for office that he should resign. You know, well, I mean, I mean that's, also that's different. He should resign with two weeks left in office. Yeah, yeah. That, so it's not it's it's not a president. Res it's it's a little it's a little different situation. Uh, saying your president should resign. Uh, you know, halfway through, sure. we're voting to impeach your president halfway through or during the first year of the presidency, as opposed to saying, well, he, sh he should uh, resign and uh, let Mike Pence uh, serve out uh, two weeks as president. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I think that that's a fair point. Absolutely.
All right. Well, uh, let's move on and talk about a pretty important, uh, uh, pretty important ruling. And this, this week, this last week, federal district judge it's Catherine Kimball Mizell halted enforcement of the Biden administration's mask mandate for all forms of public transportation. And in her ruling, Mizell was a Donald Trump appointee. She rejected the CDC's argument that its statutory authority stemmed from a provision in the U.S. Code that allowed for sanitation measures in order to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. Now, in addition to this, Mazel found that the CDC was in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act for not implementing the standard notice and comment period before the regulation was enacted. And the administration argued that it was allowed to do this based on what's called the good cause exception in the APA, which allows uh, uh, foregoing of this period if that notice and comment period would be, uh, in the language of the statute, impractical impracticable, unnecessary, or contrary to the public interest. What Mazel found here was that the that very brief assertion of good cause by the CDC was really insufficient to meet uh, their affirmative burden of clearly demonstrating why that notice and comment period could basically be dispensed with. Now, the Justice Department has appealed the ruling, though it seems to me that given that that appeal is going to be heard by the uh, conservative uh, moral or conservative leaning, I guess, 11th Circuit, I think it's unlikely that the administration is going to get the ruling at once. And even if that did happen, it seems to me even more unlikely that the Supreme Court would let that stand. Because, I mean, just last August, the court rejected the CDC's claim that it could restrict evictions. And that claim relied on the exact same language that the mask mandate claim does. Um, so, Jay, what, what do you think about uh, this ruling and uh, uh, DOJ's appeal of it? Uh, I think the judge got it uh, right, uh, mostly. I could I could quibble on the notice and comment piece, right? Um, and I think you could certainly say that uh, uh, when the initial rules were passed, um, uh, you could make that argument this was an emergency, urgent, public interest, uh, had to do something right away, and we didn't have time for the notice of comment, notice of comment period, which can typically last, like, it's like 90 days, uh, is I think the standard. Um, but it, it, it's it's a little tougher to make that now when you've got to say, hey, I'm going to propose rule, you know, when this has been going on for two years. Um, right. So you're saying that you could they could have done an interim rule with, and avoided that period and made that argument. But this this far out, there's no reason why they couldn't have. Uh, had exactly. A, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. You could have said, hey, we're going we're proposing we're extending this and so forth. Let's have notice and comment. Um, but they didn't. Uh, so that said, you you hit the, the nail on the head when you said, look, this is the exact same statute uh, that empowers the CDC, that the CDC relied on in uh, the eviction case. Uh, and this one, I'll, I'll, I will, I, I'll, I'll concede this is a closer case to me, I think, than the eviction case. And can you um, explain why? Yeah, that's. Well, I, I, I think it's, you know, look, you're, you're looking at the, and again, the, the language of the, the statute has, says. Uh, it talks about disinfecting, uh, uh, sanitizing, destroying animals, um, uh, and then there's the and take other such actions. The sort of the it's what uh, in the law you call a residual clause, or it's sort of the yada yada clause, right? Um, we should the, point the out. Let's just say we should point out that the yada yada clause doesn't necessarily cover 
everything. I mean, for instance, if if uh, the if the secretary decided, well, everyone has to wear hazmat suits or something like that, exactly. that would be overly. Yes, that's uh, you sort of jumped ahead of me, Mike. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. No, but but that's and that's sort of the the rule, right? Is that when you have the the yada yada yada. Um, that is uh, to be read consistent with the list of things that came before it. Uh, it means like stuff like uh, uh, sanitizing, destroying animals, uh, quarantining certain. Um, uh, the quarantine is actually in a second sec- separate section, but um, and, and uh, the judge's point. And this was the same one that the courts made in the eviction cases. Was listen, this this all talks about. Um, uh, taking measures to essentially clean stuff up. Um, and she relied heavily on uh, the, the, the term on sanitation. And that is the question as well. Does sanitize mean um, uh, clean stuff up uh, or does it mean uh, keep in a sanitary condition? And the, you know, she looked at, there were two potential definitions for that. And then there was a definition and then and even looking back to dictionaries at the time of when the statute was passed, how was was sanitized uh, used, and they also did this thing. It's it's the uh, corpus linguistics uh, study stuff, which I'm I gotta tell you, Mike, I'm not I'm not necessarily crazy about that, uh-huh. um, because I think there's a lot of potential for abuse. But what it does, it's sort of this database, and you look at usage of the word at the time to say, okay, what did it mean then? Um, uh, and and uh, the court came to the conclusion that look in. 95% of the time, anytime the word sanitized uh, was used, what it meant was not this keep uh, or maintain a sanitary condition, which the government argued was well, what we're doing by, by telling people to wear masks, but rather it meant uh, that other um, uh, essentially going in and cleaning the stuff up, uh, removing an unsanitary condition. Um, uh, and so that's, that's how the, the, the judge came out. And uh, like I said, I think, I think there's a closer there's a closer call there uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what sanitized means and, and so forth. Right. I see what you're uh, saying. And, uh, yeah. but it's, so what I'm saying is, is, and just, just from a common sense standpoint, right. There's, I think there's a, a lesser degree of separation between saying um, uh, the CDC can require people to wear a mask on public transport versus uh, we are going to overrule uh, all the, the lease contracts in the entire country. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a question of degree and also a question of of, of just the gravity of it, right? Um, there's there's sort of the the, the reasoning in the eviction moratorium was one step removed. That well, if people were to be evicted, one it's sort of well, uh, there's there's a pandemic on. Uh, there there will be economic hardships. People might not be able to pay the rent. If they can't pay the rent, they might be evicted. If they're evicted, they might go to a homeless shelter or move in with relatives. In which case, they might spread the disease further. All that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's what I mean. I think that's that's one step further. So I think that's the easier case to strike down. This one's closer, but I still think the judge uh, got it right. Now, but there's this other wrinkle in this that related to something that ha- uh, called the Chevron defense, yeah. which is basic, but well, which is uh, essentially a, a, a doctrine of judicial deference. And it comes from a case in 1984, a Chevron versus uh, a National Resources Defense Council. And the basic idea here is that the court should defer to how an agency interprets a statute so long as that agency interpretation is not 
unreasonable, and this is in cases where Congress hasn't, you know, spoken clearly and right. directly. Got to, you've got to get to the first step of that. There's some ambiguity, right? But 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 it sounds to me like you're saying that you know, uh, in a way, from what you were just saying, that that this is a close thing. So this is not a sort of de facto unreasonable interpretation. And so if if Judge Mazzell was going to apply this sort of Chevron rule to this, then it would suggest that. Well, that the agency's definition should be deferred to since Congress hasn't specifically spoken to this in, in clear language, saying that, no, we don't want the CDC to do this. I mean, that's 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 the correct interpretation, right, of, of how you would apply that to this, right? Correct. Yeah. No, I, I don't know whether I said that um, the, the statute was ambiguous, right? I said there's uh, I, I think that's a closer call. I, I don't know that you still say there's that that ambiguity. Well, isn't it ambiguous in that you made the argument that, well, it's, you know, it's a close call as to whether or not this is consistent with the things before. And you list those things and that gets into the whole, I mean, the fact that she had to go, she, she made such a point in her decision about, well, what exactly does sanitation mean here and there? I mean, you don't do that if it's not at least somewhat ambiguous, right? It's not like it's not like the CDC made an unreasonable case. And so it seems to me that what what Judge Mazzell is doing, like what a lot of conservative jurists have done in recent years, has said basically that, you know, Chevron deference is, is kind of is, is kind of ridiculous. Uh, Ju- Justice Alito, just, I believe Justice Kavanaugh, some others have said that this is just not a good doctrine. And it totally makes sense to me, because if you are a conservative jurist, your policy preferences tend to be, well, we don't want administrative agencies to do things. And if you if you employ Chevron deference, you're basically saying, well, they can do stuff, right? Uh, unless they're clearly. Right. And so to mm-hmm. me and to a lot of folks on the left, this is a way for conservative jurists to be able to essentially insert their own anti-regulatory, anti-government policy preferences into and, and, and essentially become judicial activist uh, policy, not makers, but policy stoppers. So I guess I would, the, the first counter argument to that is, is what uh, John Marshall said in um, Marbury versus Madison. Oh, you're going way back. Okay. <laughs> I'm going way back. Um, that it is, it is, I'm going to screw this up. It's not exclusively the, the, the province of the judicial department to say what the law is. Uh, And Chevron essentially allows the executive branch to say what the law is. And that's that's, uh, uh, constitutionally troubling. And originally in Chevron, I think the the sense was, look, when we're talking about things that are technical, right, that are within the agency's expertise, and they're the ones who enforce the statute and deal with it every day, so they know the most about it. uh, that that gives us the idea was sort of the best of both worlds, right? That there is this, um, you have the access to to government expertise, um, uh, but at the same time, you still preserve this uh, accountability. And so that, um, well, that that's where it sounds to me like you're starting to bring in uh, something called the major rules doctrine, right? Well, and, I'm getting there. Okay, okay, what? <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> um, but <laughs> what... Um, you know, Chevron essentially, as it as it has evolved in practice, has has meant is that it, it's not a matter. It's it's when you say defer. Uh, I think people should should be clear. It, it's not just a matter of 
um, hey, this is what the agency says it means. We're going to take a real hard look at that and give that some really solid consideration. It means defer. It means, uh, well, it doesn't matter what we, the court, think the statute says. We're going to defer it to the executive branch. As long as uh, that answer is not unreasonable. Problem. As long as there, there's an ambiguity. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's not like you're just saying, well, the agency said that we can't, it's not reviewable. And I think right. that's an important but distinction. Also, but also, again, uh, John Marshall didn't say it's exclusively the province of the judicial branch to say what the law is unless there's an ambiguity. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But I think the, the idea here, right, the whole, is... The whole point would be, if there's an ambiguity, it's the exclusive province of the judicial branch. Well, yeah. And it seems to me that the argument for Chevron deference is to say essentially that, well, we're not saying that the court can't say what the law is. Certainly the court can, because deference, as opposed to just blind acceptance, those are two different things. It's a question of sort of benefit. Well, but, not of the really. doubt. but in the Chevron context, not really. I, I, I guess I don't I guess I don't follow because to me, deference doesn't doesn't mean stepping aside. It means basically giving that agency interpretation uh, a certain greater weight, a benefit of the doubt. But certainly you can. No, rule no, against no. See, I, 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 the, but, but in practice, the way it works, because I would be OK with that. Right. And, and there are a number of states. Mike, there's an outstanding brief that was filed in the Supreme <laughs> yeah. Court uh, just last week on this very issue. Uh, about how states apply Chevron uh, uh, deference, and there are a number of states who have who have uh, either uh, by judicial ruling or by statute established just that that says, look, um, when uh, the agency expresses if there's an ambiguity, the agency can express uh, its view on this, and the courts ought to give it you know really some 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 good weight, a great weight, even even sometimes you know presumptive. Wait, uh, that's different than saying we will just defer to hey agency whatever you say. So there's there are different there are different uh, varieties uh, flavors I guess of Chevron um, of deference as you as you go down the scale and and like I said I think if if courts want to say well we're going to give some some special weight to uh, uh, the agency I don't think that's inappropriate uh, from a constitutional standpoint I, I do think it's inappropriate to say. Um, whatever you say, agency. Right. Because also, oh, I agree. You, you think in, in practice, um, and in in this this uh, 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 fantastic brief, Mike, it references uh, actually uh, studies that have been done about um, differing um, levels of deference in different states and how uh, uh, statutes and rules are written. Right. Uh, it, it's the agencies that write these rules. Uh, or it's the legislatures that write the statutes, agencies write the rules. Um, there's also what's called uh, our difference, which is sort of Chevron, uh, but just applying to um, the agency's internal rules. Um, and and but the idea is that the the more this this happens, um, uh, the the more the the administrative agencies write in order to get more ambiguity, right, to increase their power. And I think that's. That's a problem. That's something we talk about all the time, yeah. right? Is that, yeah. that Congress deferring too much to to the executive? Um, and I think Chevron is one of the the uh, accessories to that crime, if you will. Well, and and, and sort of to try to deal with that, uh, the court came up with this idea. At least conservatives on the court came up with this idea, the major rules doctrine, which is basically this idea that, well, if we're talking about minor things that don't have any kind of significant impact, uh, then right. yeah, we'll, we'll you, defer. You, you submit your form in triplicate. Uh, uh, yes. Signed with a blue ink signature on, on the, this day of, of March as opposed to that day. Yeah. 
And, and so I, I guess you're you're okay w- with that as sort of a way to kind of mitigate what you see as the problematic nature of Chevron deference. Um, I think yes, it mitigates. Uh, I think we're we're overdue for a a revamp, though, right? That of really looking at at Chevron of uh, can it stand constitutionally? Period. And, and to be clear, and, but, this but is in a... the meantime, I think, sir, the major, major question it, that's sort of a you know one of those first fights in there, and that's that's sort of ground that that has been taken back, um, and it, it kind of proves the point because I think a lot of a lot of folks would say, uh, look, when it's not these these big policy issues uh, that are, are really impacted, um, there, there seems to be less, less of an issue of deferring to the agency, right? Um, if it is sort of just about how agency interprets, again, sort of the administrative pieces of it, uh, or the technical pieces of it. Um, but when it's the administrative agency, um, reinterpreting the scope of of what the statute entitles them to do, I think that's that's something different entirely. And I, I would say uh, a rule that applies to all public transportation in the country and millions and millions of people traveling every day, um, I I think that would qualify as a major rule. So that is what what you're kind of looking towards, or the idea that deference should be given in terms of the. Uh, the type of action, but not in terms of the actual authority or ability to act in the first place. I mean, is that the kind of distinction that you're getting at? Um, a little bit, although although there's going to be some overlap there, right? Sure. Yeah. Between type and authority, but I think I think it's the the second uh, thing is, is the much bigger problem, right? If you say, well, hey, we've got this statute that says we can uh, propose rules, uh, you know, dealing with diseases and uh, uh, sanitizing areas, destroying animals, uh, yada, 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 uh, therefore no evictions, or therefore everybody wears a mask uh, on every public transportate, trans, transportation uh, carrier in the, in the nation. Um, like, whoa, that's a, that's, a, that's a bigger deal, right? That sort of seems to be overstepping that, uh, that mandate. And, and the other, the other really test to look at is, right, is has this type of power ever been used or asserted before? under that statute. And, and it really, you know, again, you can say, well, look, 2020 was, was unique. Um, and that's true to some extent. Um, but in, in many ways that, that uniqueness, um, argues for, uh, you know, exactly what, what some of the, the um, course in the eviction cases said is if Congress wants to do this, uh, Congress can probably do it. Yeah, and and that's that's kind of where you and I know very much agree that uh, in terms of even if even if an agency can do certain things, uh, oftentimes it's better that Congress speak because that that puts that stamp of legitimacy on it in a way that you don't get with an agency action. You know, there was yeah, a, and, and, I'll, and I'll point out that so the one the big example was in the eviction cases. Uh, what happened was Congress did pass an eviction moratorium. Uh, and that went for a certain period of time, and then it expired. And then what happened was uh, the administration tried to administratively um, uh, renew it. And, and that's what uh, now there was there was a court um, in Texas that that uh, said that the that Congress didn't even have that power because it wouldn't be on the Commerce Clause. Um, but that's another that's another case, and we're not we're not there. But I, the most of the other cases said, look. Um, 
the fact that Congress did do this uh, and then, you know, stop doing it and then the agency does it again. That, right, that's yes, sort of indicative yeah. that the agency is ex- uh, ex- um, exceeding its yeah, uh, range. Right, right. You know, it reminds me of there was uh, back back in the 50s when when Harry Truman was president and he uh, tried to seize the, the steel mills, uh, essentially. Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. Youngstown, uh, and tube. Uh, yeah, the, uh, Truman said that the president has the power to keep the country from going to hell. And actually, no, the president doesn't have that that power necessarily. And so I understand the policy arguments, certainly, and you can certainly make that point. But I would say Congress actually needs to authorize that because we tend to forget, I think, oftentimes that the, the executive branch is supposed to, you know, execute the laws and not sort of make the laws in the first place. And Congress has been complicit in this, right? The other, yeah. the other piece of this is the non-delegation doctrine, right, which says that Congress can't basically transfer its legislative powers to an executive branch agency just to avoid having to make tough decisions, right? Which is what a lot of folks on, on certainly even on the right would argue Congress has done in some areas like uh, our, our never ending wars in, you know, all kinds of places. And, and, you know, I think that's a, I think that's a reasonable case. And I think we have a, a Congress full of, you know, politically opportunistic cowards basically who don't want to make tough votes and say, well, let's just push this over to the agencies. If we don't like it, we can yell and scream at them, but this way we're not on the hook. Yeah. And I, I would point out, point out that the true sort of old-fashioned uh, Whiggish uh, conservatism, right? Uh, it, it, it's all about, uh, you know, there's a reason that Congress is uh, Article One. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you there. And so the way to the way to force uh, the way to fix a dysfunctional Congress is not to just keep on work, trying to work around it, essentially, I, I think it's and that's kind of where kind of bandaging the problem, trying to uh, get, you know, get around this sort of dysfunctional institution. That's not going to help make this institution any more functional. Yeah. And I, I do want to take this opportunity, though, to uh, take a swing at Dr. Fauci. Um, uh, of course you do. <laughs> and, and, and no, but first of all, one to one to congratulate ourselves and our listeners uh, on on this type of conversation that we're having and to sort of contrast it with uh, how Fauci and the CDC has has set this this out. Um, he told um, uh, CNN, um, the, the principle of the court overruling a public health judgment by a qualified organization like the CDC is disturbing in the precedent that it might send. Um, those were his words. Uh, send. Yeah. I think he meant uh, might might set maybe, but that's what he said. But he's the expert. Um, uh, and he said went on to say the mask mandate is a CDC issue. It should not have been a court issue. Uh, we are concerned about courts getting involved in things that are unequivocally public health decisions. Um, well, yeah, that's ridiculous. But you that's, know, he, that's he's exactly the, sort of. The, and I've, I've seen so much of this on the left of uh, who does this judge think she is? Uh, she's no public health expert. Um, and no, but that's that's very much not the question. The question yeah. is never whether this is a wise or necessary policy. It's whether the CDC has the authority to enact it. Yeah, no, and, and on that, you and I and you totally, get that, yeah. and I get that. Yeah, but but Fauci doesn't. And then there's this this whole thing about how you know the judge was she was uh, viewed as uh, listed as unqualified by the ABA and that sort of thing. And you know, she's the, too young. Yeah, yes. exactly. She's like I think she's like 35 or something yeah. like that, basically. But I, I think there's no question. She's pretty young. Yeah, well, it's one. Of, she's one of the youngest federal judges. But but even so, even bringing up that issue, that seems to me uh, to be essentially a, a non-starter. She's clearly one of those legal superstar folks. She she clerked for Tom. 
Obama. She's probably smarter than the two of us combined with a whole bunch left over kind of stuff, you know. You're better so, looking too. I shouldn't you know, say that. So, right? so uh, not, I'm going to let that sit. Anyway, uh, but but yeah, I think that's kind of a non-issue that was that was raised. She was only listed as unqualified by the ABA because she had, I think, eight years as opposed to what they generally want. I believe it's 12 years of prior experience. But I think she was also like eight years at Jones Day, um, which is like yeah, it's way you know, up in, yeah. in dog years. That's like yeah, you know, like 40 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. People years. Um, no, and I'm, I want to point something. This is just a, a little weird quirk about the legal world, um, and that is, and this is going to sound weird, right? But that whole experience piece probably matters a lot more on the district court and the trial court level than it does at the appellate court level. And that's going to sound counterintuitive. Um, but again, it's just this, this weird thing of like, look, all these these judges who have law clerks, all uh, select law clerks who are just right out of law school um, when they know absolutely nothing. <laughs> have them research and help write the opinions. Um, and it's it's a weird, you know, apprenticeship sort of thing. And the idea is it, it trains the law clerks and so forth. But um, the this it goes that appellate questions tend to be more these just straight ahead intellectual questions of law, right? I see what you're saying. Sure. Whereas in the in the 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 hurly burly of of the trial court thing, right? There's a whole lot more that's there's a lot more nuance, right? There's a lot more dealing with the parties and. Uh, uh, you know, hoping moving towards people towards settlement and, um, uh, you know, dealing with objections and evidentiary issues, um, uh, making, you know, making sure the trial moves forward. There's a lot more of that just experience type stuff that that would be needed at the trial court than at the appeal, at the appeals court. And yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just yeah. saying. It's it's a weird uh, kind of function. So so basically, um, I would be a better appellate court judge than I would be a trial court judge. Absolutely, yeah. no, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. No, most people would, right? I mean, yeah. most if you're a, a a really good law student, intellectual, good reader, good writer type person, and again, there's there's certainly that comes with experience as well. But um, it's it's you it'd be much easier to fit into that appellate world than to fit into yeah. No, the, I see that the other world which requires more just kind of management skills if you will yeah, right no, I get that it. you yeah. only learn by experience yeah it's an interesting point huh all right well let's let's move on to our uh next story there something a little bit different uh, i've been calling it DeSantis versus disney but i guess it's really kind of like Florida GOP versus uh, Disney. Uh, but uh, anyway, so the Florida legislature this week approved a measure that would eliminate Disney's um, unique tax status, I'll call it, which basically allows them to operate as kind of an independent government entity on their on their lands. And there, there are a lot of folks who see this as the Republican legislature and Governor DeSantis basically punishing Disney, which is the state's largest private employer, around 80,000 people or so, for taking a public stand against what's been called Florida's uh, don't say gay law. And also the Disney CEO's decision. Or as I like to call it, the don't teach kindergartners through third graders there, about sex. There but, you go. But anyway, and also Disney CEO said that we're, they're not going to make political contributions in Florida anymore. And this is after decades of doing a whole lot of that, mostly to Republicans, including 50 grand to DeSantis's reelection. 
Now, this this uh, measure by the Florida legislature was passed by a very wide margin. And I should point out that there was no real effort made to even determine the financial impact of changing Disney's status on the state's finances. In fact, Democrats in Florida State Senate proposed an amendment that says, hey, maybe we should study the potential economic impact of the bill. This was defeated in a voice vote. Um, and one of the key economic issues here is that there's nearly a billion dollars in tax-free bonds that have been issued by Disney. And under Florida law, these obligations revert back to local governments. And so according to according to Florida Democrats, this would amount to an average additional tax burden of around $580 per person for the 1.7 million people in the counties that would be affected. And so I, I got to say, Jay, from my standpoint, this seems like Florida Republicans uh, putting on their cultural warrior hats and saying, damn the economic consequences, we're going to show Disney who's boss. And I wanted to get your take on this. So, you know, a lot of cases, uh, I would very much be concerned about um, uh, a state legislature taking aim at a particular corporation. Um, that said, I think the, the equation is a little bit different. Uh, when it's a matter of we're just not going to allow that corporation uh, what it is heretofore enjoyed as, as a unique status uh, in the state and really probably unique status anywhere in the country. Uh, I, and, and I think that's, that's not, uh, I don't see that as the heavy-handed uh, government telling the corporation uh, what they need to do. Um, uh, when the, the, the government has, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of look, the, uh, government giveth, government taketh away. Um, but, you know, I mean, in other contexts, I, I remember you saying a, a number of occasions, hey, you know, nice corporation you got there. It'd be a shame yeah. if something happens to it. It sure yeah. sounds a lot like me to that. I mean, and well, it does. It does. And, and like I said, I think the distinction is, one, uh, here's a corporation that's going about its own business. Um, and, you know, if it doesn't do what we want to do, we're going to go regulate the hell out of it. Uh, it's something different where, uh, corporation, we have given you this unique uh, status, both in terms of, of taxation and also in terms of, of self-government, um, that you get to essentially run your own sort of uh, fiefdom over. Uh, I mean, it's it's a, a huge area, right? Uh, your own sort of unelected government. Um, uh, and, and this allows you to... Uh, uh, you know, build things that you wouldn't be able to build otherwise and uh, all the rules you don't have to comply with. I think it's I think it's a different sort of situation where you have where a corporation has existed and profited uh, by a particular carve out uh, as opposed to just a, a hey, um, uh, a Facebook or Twitter. We don't uh, we don't like the stuff people are posting. Uh, we want you to to change it or else we're coming after you or. But I mean, um, this but, is punitive, right? I mean, there's no question this is punitive. Yeah. And there's no question, it seems to me, may, and maybe you disagree, there's no question to me that in a way you can argue that this is fiscally irresponsible because no serious effort was made to kind of determine what sort of effect this would have on, on tax, on Florida taxpayers. I mean, a billion dollars isn't nothing, right? It might, it might be, yeah. Um, but <laughs> of course, of course the, the, the fun part of this is uh, those Florida taxpayers, those those bondholders, um, uh, it it would it could be very much a boon to local Florida governments, right? You could make that argument. 
uh, who have been struggling throughout the pandemic, and we're taking away a huge corporate tax break uh, for this this uh, uh, you know corporate behemoth. Um, but except and, and look, the, the way the, to make these that... bondholders can uh, can they can take it up with the uh, corporation and say, listen, uh, you know we uh, we came in hoping we could get these these tax free bonds, and now you've screwed it up. Uh, maybe you ought to reconsider. Yeah, I mean, yeah, cause, cause I, I almost can understand Florida doing this, uh, but it just seems to me to be, you know, a, a primary obligation of the legislature is to, you know, ensure the economic well-being of the state and its residents. And the fact that this was done without any sort of, you know, due diligence, I guess, just strikes me as being the height of irresponsibility. I I don't know. You're 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 usually less. Uh... Less concerned about due diligence when it comes to tax increases. Well, that, that's um, just not this the case. Would, this would be a, a, a essentially a tax increase on people who own, own uh, hold these bonds. Yeah, no, and that's that's. that's I mean, I, I it's not a, it's not a broad across the board tax increase. Now you could say, listen, this could affect a major employer, and maybe they don't hire as many people, or 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 what have you. Um, I suppose that's that's a possibility. Well, I mean, but, no, the very fact we we know for a fact that there's that under existing Florida law that uh, close to a billion dollars in obligations goes reverts back to the the states those local governments in those yeah. two counties and so that's not like a that's not like a deeply you know we, we don't know what's going to happen here we know for a fact that that at the least is going to happen and i would say that well there you go you did your fiscal analysis i mean but there's a Good lot job. there's a lot more than that obviously and and clearly you know you know i guess i would I would push back on the argument that I, I am, am just kind of cavalier about this when it comes to tax increases, because I always look at what the what the CBO and other projections are. And maybe you disagree with those conclusions, but I think it's just not correct to say that I don't consider that when it comes to tax increases. All right. Fair so. enough. And, you know, and this is this is part of a larger trend, right? I mean, last year uh, in Georgia, the legislature uh, threatened to raise taxes on Delta uh, because of, you know, the changes that Georgia made in right. voting laws. And, and, and see that I think is to me, that's more that's that's a much bigger problem, right, of saying we're going to raise taxes on one company um, if it is just raising taxes. Okay. On it. Now, again, if it's a matter of. um Again, we're not going to give you the special privileges that you heretofore enjoyed. I think that's a that's a different question. See, you know, and I wonder because the, the argument I, w I would say is that if you if you are in a situation where a corporation uh, or an entity has enjoyed a status for an extended period of time, I mean, this is from 1967, yeah. I believe it was so well over half a century now, and so this is in effect, you know, the 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 level of the playing field and has been for a long time and just with no, no notice, no negotiation, no anything, just saying, Oh, we're going to pull this. I don't really see, I understand that it is a difference technically, but the idea that it is any kind of a real world difference, I, I, I don't think so. So I, I understand. I think it's a difference. I, I, I think the, without the a fact difference. that it's, this is the only one, right? This isn't just a, uh, look, there is, for example, say there was a, here's the, the airline tax, right? Here's, here's what, uh, here are, or, or here are certain tax breaks that airlines are entitled to, um, uh, right? And, and it, it would be across, industry-wide across the board. This is one particular company, 
Yeah, I get it. I, I understand. And, I understand what you're yeah, saying. I think that's different. But I, and I think it is. A, I think it's a technical distinction, but I don't think it's a real difference in the in the end. You know. And so I guess though you would also say then, for instance, that you know in Texas they were talking about uh, uh, not allowing Citigroup for underwriting underwriting their bonds unless Citigroup changed its policy of paying for employees to go out of state to get abortions, uh, that would be the kind of thing you would object to as well, as being like singling out a corporation. Citigroup or, not to, okay, let me well, follow so, yeah, this. Citigroup's policy at, at present is yes. to pay for employees to go out of state to get abortions if they, you know, if they choose to, obviously, uh, because of Texas, they can't in Texas. And right. Texas legislators have said, well, if you keep on doing this, we're not going to let you, Citigroup, underwrite any more state bonds. Is that? Yes, I would it? oppose that. Okay. Okay. So I, I see what you're saying, and I think your heart's in the right place on this, but I think you're making a sort of a legalistic technical distinction that doesn't matter. But No, uh, no, although, although I will go back to with the Citigroup stuff, um, there's there's probably some degree of discretion, right, in terms of of who the the state chooses to underwrite yeah. various bonds, yeah. right? It's not a, it's not like an entitlement. It's not a a we are going to, again, tax you more or we are going to, um, pull business you already have, uh, it would you know, be change, change contracts or something like that. Uh, we just might be not as friendly uh, to you going forward. Yeah, and this would be saying and the we, latter. The latter, I think, is I think that's just plain that's plain old politics, right? Well, it's one and thing that, to say that no. happens. Oh my, you you would have no idea in in you know treasurer's offices across the the country. Well, it's one thing to say, well, we're we're going to be not so friendly going forward, kind of privately. It's another thing to actually pass legislation saying you are barred for competing for these. For Agreed. This. I yes. mean, that's a whole yeah, different. No, that, that's what I mean. I, I think so. I think if the treasurer were to say, listen, I've got some real problems with some of your policies. And if you want to get our business, um, because in that case, it's it's a it's a business to business, essentially transaction. Right. It's it's not this the government coming in and passing a law saying you must do this or must do that or can't do this. Um, uh, so yes, if it's if it's the the latter, I'm okay with it. Uh, putting it in the statute, uh, I think, is bad. And I guess this is what concerns me, and this is part of what well depresses me, I guess, about the, the Republican Party. You know, for the last half decade or more, actually, is that it seems to me the wing of the party that said, you know, we're about fiscal responsibility. And I, I may have disagreed with some of their ideas about that and, you know, enterprise and libertarian kind of ideas to now we are, I see the party in many instances pivoting toward being, well, we're going to put these social issues first and foremost. Now, in part, obviously, that's a rhetorical sort of thing and done just to kind of bring the you know, the, the kind of traditional values warriors, if you will, kind of into the tent and get them energized. But when that starts to come at the expense uh, in a very real sense of uh, what's supposed to be a bedrock, you know, conservative fiscal responsibility, that to me, and I think that to any kind of traditional conservative should be troubling. Yeah, but let me hit that there's something else that's going on recently that that hasn't been going on for that long. And that is corporations uh, wading in, in a big way, uh, into these sort of social questions. And often, often wading in in a misinformed, unthinking way. 
It didn't right? get to the slide uh, so that for example, the government when, when I mean, was, this legislation was 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 proceeding through um, the Florida legislature. Uh, Disney was silent, right? They've they've got I'm sure an army of, of lobbyists, uh, especially in in Florida. Um, no one said boo. Uh, then uh, all of a sudden, when some Disney employees, woke Disney employees, uh, kind of egged on um, uh, by the left. Uh, said this is, you know, and the media dubbed this as the don't say gay bill and all that sort of thing um, through a fit. Then uh, Disney management caved and all of a sudden this is the worst bill ever. This is terrible. How could this happen? We're not going to you know, allow this to, to go forward. Um, that's that's essentially playing playing dirty pool. Um, and I, so? I think um, well, I'm dirty pool. Explain what you mean. Why is that? That's just simply isn't that just a, a, a private a private corporation responding to pressures from I mean legitimate concerns from uh, employees in the market? I, that's isn't that how markets are supposed to work? I mean that, that well, that's it's dirty all, but, it's, but it's disingenuous, isn't it? It's kind of it's kind of like uh, again canceling the All Star Game and what Coke and Delta and all those companies how, did. How is, how is I mean, it do disingenuous? you think they really believed that that was Jim Crow two point Of course not. Do you think do you think that the Disney management really believes that that uh, um, this bill was was a big issue. No, because otherwise they would have been watching it. They would have had their lobbyists. They they could have they could have spoken up at any time and said, "Listen, here here we have some concerns. Let's address them." Well, how do we know uh, what? It, no, they, I disagree. They sort of laid in wait. I disagree. I think they they did not necessarily know how big of a deal it was to people that work for them and to people that. But the, Mike, they have they have lots and lots of very 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 highly paid people. Oh yeah, and very very. Is to, this is you, you are the guy. Them. You are the guy who, not too long ago, on a regular basis, questions the ability of experts to predict these things. I mean, come on, Jay. I, uh, sure, they they may have ideas about what's going to hit big and what's not going to, but they don't necessarily know. And the idea that they're being disingenuous by responding to what I feel are legitimate concerns from employees and the public—that's not disingenuous. That's just, I think, that's just smart, responsible business. Mike, they know. Well, let's put it this way. Is it smart, responsible business um, to say, yes, employees, whatever you think the bill says, it, that it says? But I don't think they're saying that at all. I well, guess I that's mean, what we made different. they're jumping on the bandwagon, right? And, and again, this is... I mean, I'm um, on the bandwagon, it, 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 too. And, so. and there, there is no question. Again, if, if you understood how the, the lobbying world, there is no question that everyone knew about this. I'm not saying they didn't. No, they don't understand. I, 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 don't misunderstand. I certainly, of course, they knew about this, but they didn't necessarily know the sort of outrage that it would it would inspire in certain elements of the public. And so, yeah, I, I mean, but here's it, the thing, Mike. You and I did. You and I did what? We we could see this the outrage coming. Well, you you always see the outrage coming. So no, I don't know. So, about no, that. I, I, what I'm saying is, I'm you know we're. People not on the ground with with just a little bit of information here, um, and see how this thing is gonna would would blow up. Um, I guess and I, I, I I see what you're saying, but you have, I, so so Mike, the way this works, right? I mean, you, you have these <clears throat> these legislative hearings, and you go to the hearings, and you sit there for hours and hours, and you know uh, all sorts of people come in and and raise their concerns. And your job as a lobbyist is to sit there uh, for hours and hours listening to all this and then report back to someone. And obviously, some of these concerns were raised by, by someone. Um, 
you know, during, during this process and, and that no one ever uh, saw it or, or now says they didn't, you know, I, I think that's just, just nonsense. That's, that's why I'm saying it's, it's, it's disingenuous. And if you are a, I get um, you. Okay. Well, you're sure. a corporate yeah. player, right? If you're, if you're playing the game, right. And you're playing it responsibly. And when I say playing the game, I don't mean that to, to imply something improper, right? I, in fact, I'm, I'm trying to imply something proper, right? That there are certain rules. Um, like, look, in the legislature, okay, if, if, you, if you're a, a lobbyist and you represent a group and, you know, you go to the, the, the bill sponsor says, hey, are you with us? You say, yes, we're with you. We're not going to oppose. That's a big deal. And again, this isn't written in the Constitution or in statute or anywhere. Um, this is just the, uh, you know, you don't throw at the batter's head um, sure. type thing. This is this is just human trust. This is how it works. Um, and people who would uh, abuse that uh, at some point, uh, you, they're, they're not going to get the same response, the same traction uh, as others. And, and com- companies that do things like... Uh, you know, you have legislators say, Hey, this okay with you. Any objections? Nobody object. Okay. We're passed. And then all of a sudden you come in and, Oh my God, this is, this is an assault on basic human rights. Um, I I can very well see why the legislature and the governor would say, all right, we're not, you know, so basically it's, I mean, it sounds to me, it's, this is throwing at the batter's head. So responding, responding to responding to concerns of your employees and your patrons is somehow out of out of bounds. I guess that's that's I understand what you're saying, but the idea that well, you know, obviously Disney didn't want to make a deal big deal out of this if they didn't have to because they have a lot of longstanding cozy relationships with Republicans in Florida. I mean, that's why they've given them most of the campaign money. It seems to me Disney just said, well, we hope this isn't going to be a thing because it can cause a real problem for us because we like where the Republicans are in terms of tax and economic policy, but uh, we're a little uncomfortable with the social stuff. We're going to see what happens here and keep our fingers crossed. And they made that bet and they lost that bet. Yeah, but I I guess let's, let's put it this way. If you are a Republican, in Florida or elsewhere, and you have companies that keep coming to you and say, "Listen, we really need some some help uh, getting some some breaks on taxes and regulatory issues. Uh, we're getting killed out there." And uh, look, if you if you stick your neck out for us, um, uh, you know this is this is really going to be helpful for uh, jobs and the and growth and and uh, the economy of your state. And and you're the Republicans, and and you know this is. How many, however many times the you know Lucy says I'm going to hold the football, I'm not going to pull it away. After so many times, when you know, then then you do this, you stick your neck out for them, um, spend political capital, and then they come back with you know, people are violating civil rights, you're the worst in the world. Uh, it, at some point, you just say no, we're we're not doing this anymore. I, mean, I, 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 I mean, completely yeah. understand that. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think you're you're these these poor victims in the legislature. It's so tragic how uh, how these folks are just being victimized. I it just I uh, no, my I'm, eyes I'm, are I'm rolling. Not saying, I'm not saying a, a victim. I don't think is is the right word. Uh, but but it's a matter no, of I you understand. Can't keep, I understand you know, what you're yeah. saying. You're saying that if 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 Disney is going to the Florida legislature and saying, "Hey, we want." We want all this stuff, and in exchange, you know, the the legislature say, "Well, okay, just don't don't 
don't badmouth us and we'll keep on giving you stuff, but don't expect us to give you stuff if you badmouth us. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, that certainly is, that certainly is reasonable, but you know, these are all self-interested players who are kind of weighing the, the pros and the cons. And I don't think there's a hell of a lot of honesty on either side of this actually. And so just a matter of when that, when those sort of fortunes, when that weight, you know, then when that balance changes, and my question is, well, it seems to me, or my my observation is, it seems to me that right now, the Republican Florida legislature and the governor, who, who has his eyes on the White House, obviously, is making the calculation that it's worthwhile to stick Florida, uh, at least in those two counties, Florida residents with a pretty significant tax increase if it means that it can kind of rev up the base on these on these social issues. Um, so one more thing that I think is is very much worth noting that very few people have noted. This bill wouldn't take effect until next year. Um, meaning, uh, I think what's what's happened is DeSantis has has sort of um, responded and laid down the gauntlet. Uh, and if I am these Disney lobbyists. Um, oh, so uh, it's it's Vito coming to the store saying, hey, you know, these windows, they look like they could <laughs> they could break pretty easily here. Uh, I see what you say. It's, it it's no, the shakedown. I, there, part. You know, gotcha. it is it is some it is some uh, to that. Say, listen, uh, you are now putting your 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 tax exempt status. You have put your tax exempt status at risk. Um, it uh, it could change. Uh, maybe we can work something out. Um, but I mean, I think there, there's also I think just there's an anger that I don't think uh, a lot of folks on the left understand uh, or, or see. Um, and, and, the, and you see this in the, the vast numbers of, 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 of how overwhelming this the bill passed um, of of this government getting into. And I want to say something just about the, on the merits of the, the, the bill. We talked about this a couple of weeks back. Um, but aside from from um, the metric system trains in the post office, the other thing that progressives love more than anything else is teaching other people's kids about sex. Uh, and it's, it's been sort of a perennial thing. And this is sort of the, the most recent iteration of it. Um, but a lot of people, uh, how, when you tell them, hey, um, you think it? You think it's appropriate to talk about uh, sex, gender issues in kindergarten through third grade? Um, most people would say, "No, I, I, I don't think that's appropriate." And uh, yet, yet, you know, I, the, the bill didn't arise in a vacuum. Yeah, but but Jay, I mean, again, this gets to this issue of subsidiarity. It's like, well, who should be making this decision? Do you want uh, do you want the state government to be making it, or do you want the local school boards to be making it, or would you rather have this dictate? come down from on high as to what your local school can and cannot teach. And so to me, this is just like taking traditional conservative values about subsidiarity and local control and flipping them on their head to push a social, uh, to push a cultural agenda. I think the, the, the issue that so many people have seen is one, uh, they don't know about what's going on until after it happens. Right. And that's that's part of the, the issue there, the lack of transparency with local school boards. Uh, and that's not to say all of them, but certainly some of them. Um, and, and I can tell you, as someone who <laughs> has litigated these kind of like public records requests, 
um, uh, you, you'd be surprised the, uh, the, the unwillingness to share what, uh, what is public information, uh, public information that uh, taxpayers are paying for. Um, uh, so I, I, I understand that. And I think, I think you're right. I would prefer that, uh, things be handled at a local level. Uh, I think that's a much better way to go. But the reason you see these, these things of, uh, the prohibitions of, look, you can't do this is because there's the sense of it is being done and people aren't finding out about it until late. They're not getting the they're not getting the the opportunity to say yay or nay at the local level. Uh, it's just happening. But they can change uh, and then that. the states react. I mean, it, it's 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 exactly the sort of action you criticize when the left does it. It's just that it happens to be an advancement of a of a goal that you believe in, and so it's okay in this sense. How how so? Because it's not. I mean, it, the idea is that right. Well, you know, at the no, local I, level, so, it's so kind look, of messy. Oppose, and, uh, right. I oppose states uh, uh, having non mask mandates. Right. I said that should be a, a question mm-hmm. for local uh, districts. Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying as a blanket sort of thing, but in this instance, it seems to me to be, again, inconsistent. I, I, I do not I don't buy your I think your argument that, well, people don't know what's going on at the school school board level. Well, sure. It, if they want to get involved enough and go to those meetings and and, you know, have have a role in policy, well, they but, can. But certainly that's the thing. That. It's there. It's not going to be. They're not going to say, hey, next on our agenda, um, we're going to talk about uh, whether we should uh, provide, uh, uh, you know, gender education and sex education mean, for so, kindergarten so, through third graders. So, so people okay, are going to have to actually pay that. attention. And you make the exact same argument, it seems to me, when it comes to voting. Say, well, hey, you know. It's not paying attention. It's, it's I'm not sure. There, there's no, if, if it's if it's never uh, comes up for a vote, it's not a matter of you, you can't pay attention. That's what I'm saying. It's not on the agenda. It just happens, I, and then I afterwards, guess, yeah. parents show up and say, "Hey, we don't, we don't like this." And then uh, you can take point, action by ousting school board members and electing people who are going to do the things you want. This is how representative democracy works. And and I'm sorry if it's if it's messy, you know, but you know, it seems to me that's exactly the argument that you've made in other instances about voting, saying why should we make it so easy? You know, it's it's important if people care, they should get involved. And so, yeah, that's why I get what you're saying. I just think it's just kind of on a basic level, kind of kind of wrongheaded and inconsistent with conservative. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying to uh, explain why I think in this case the state has stepped in. Now, part of it obviously is look political self interest and right sure. jumping ahead of a train. You want that's that that's given. Um, but I, I think it's it, there's there's a difference in that people have the sense of uh, they are not able to have that conversation or have that debate in their local school boards. And that's because, wrong. One, it just it just happens without their knowledge, and that's really a, a lot of I think of um, uh, one of the reasons why so much of this happened right after the pandemic. Right, is is all of a sudden people were were seeing classes, were seeing what went on, and, and there was a uh, there was all of a sudden a, a veil lifted for a lot of people, uh, and there was also a a sense of uh, frustration by parents of schools not coming back into session um, in person, and yet getting lots of money and spending the money on other things um, like plans to teach their kids about, uh, you know, their kindergartners <laughs> about, about uh, what their, their gender ought to be. 
Well, yeah, and that's uh, why obviously you're exaggerating for effect. We won't get in. We talked well, about that a few weeks. Yeah, we we talked about that a, a while back when we talked about the law itself. I, I I would I would argue that you are mischaracterizing it for comic effect, but that's that's okay. I've, I mean, in in this context, well, I guess. Well, it's not extent, Mike. As long as if the comic effect is achieved, then yeah, that's the important thing, right? Yeah. All right, you know, uh, uh, if you are a politics guys supporter, the rest of our episode is coming right up. We're going to be talking about the latest in Russia and Ukraine and tax day and tax policy and 420, which was this last week, and pot policy and also our uniquely stupid last decade and social media, all that. If you're not a politics guy supporter, just a quick reminder, full episodes, uh, ad-free, run around two hours or so. They're available to our Patreon supporters, as well as to anyone who's not in a position to financially support the podcast. Uh, to become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us on Venmo or at Politics Guys, as well as through PayPal. And you can find all support links there in the show notes at, at and also at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you are in that position where you're just not financially able to support us right now, but you want that access, send me an email, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. And whether or not you're a supporter, it really helps us out if you can subscribe, rate the show, and leave a review on whatever podcast app you use, as well as sharing episodes on social media. Thanks so much.